section fourteen of charles james fox by henry offley wakeman this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by pamela nagami chapter seven the years of opposition part two unfortunately a dilemma in politics is rarely more successful than a dilemma in argument and pitt found little difficulty in picking his way through the toils which his enemies had spun for him when the rohilla charge was brought before the house by burke on the first of june dundas pitt's closest friend and the president of the board of control took the lead in opposing the motion on the ground that however blameworthy hastings conduct might have been there was nothing on which to found a criminal charge fox strongly supported burke and described the whole transaction as the basest of bargains to exterminate an inoffensive people for forty lakhs of rupees for that sum he cried the character the dignity the honour of the english nation were basely and treacherously exposed to sale the house however took the other view and threw out the motion by a majority of fifty-two on the thirteenth of june fox brought forward the benares charge and at the beginning of the following year sheridan introduced that relating to Oued in his celebrated begum speech which has been pronounced by so many competent judges to be the finest display of eloquence ever listened to by the house of commons in both these matters pitt though not fully accepting the accounts of the opposition thought that there was enough disclosed on which to found an impeachment he took a leading part in settling the articles which were to be laid before the lords and having thus carefully avoided identifying himself with the doubtful acts of hastings was content to let the impeachment drag its weary length along and absorb the energy of the opposition which otherwise would be devoted to his own policy on the other hand the king was wise enough to see that after all a long and wearisome investigation was the best way of avoiding any direct censure on hastings and never withdrew from pitt any of his confidence for the part which he had played but by far the gravest of the difficulties with which fox had to contend during this part of his political life was his close connection with the prince of wales a character so low mean and degraded has rarely tarnished the reputation of an english family to find a parallel we must go to the brutalized courts of germany to the abandoned court of louis the fifteenth or to the barbarous court of russia in the eighteenth century immorality wastefulness and folly were at that time the recognized privileges of princes of the blood the prince of wales added to them the mean and unkingly vices of shamelessness and mendacity while generous instincts and noble thoughts seemed as far from his character as the more vulgar feelings of filial or domestic affection it had become a sinister tradition in the house of hanover for the heir to the throne to be in violent antagonism to his father in the case of george the third and his son antagonism ripened into a hatred which neither side cared to attempt to conceal the king harsh and unsympathetic looked upon every act of boyish independence as little better than rebellion the prince dissolute and undutiful took a malignant pleasure in outraging his father's prim respectability partly to annoy the king 
partly because he had imbibed as real an affection for Fox as his shallow nature was capable of, he had from the first violently attached himself to the Whigs, became a member of Brooks, wore their colours, voted for their measures, and celebrated the return of Fox for Westminster with rejoicings which were as indecent in a person of his position as they were uproarious. There was not a more violent Foxite in the kingdom, wrote Lord Cornwallis in 1783. Such conduct as this naturally did no small disservice to his friends. It is characteristic of Fox that he never seems to have pressed upon the prince, perhaps he never fully realized, the harm which was being done to his party and to its leader. The secret of the king's rooted antipathy to the Whigs, of his personal enmity to Fox, is to be found mainly in the conduct of the Prince of Wales. Of course, George III was strongly opposed to the Whigs on political grounds. He would never, and he had never, accepted Whigs as his ministers when he could help himself. But there is a distinct difference to be noted in his dealings with men like Chatham and Rockingham, and his conduct to Fox. Partly, no doubt, it is to be accounted for by the change in his own position. He was not so strong and not so experienced in the days of Chatham and Rockingham as he was in the days of Fox and the Duke of Portland. Partly it is to be explained by the greater boldness of Fox's views. But after making all allowances for considerations such as these, there remains behind a vast fund of suspicion and prejudice which is only explicable on the grounds of a deep moral hatred. George III looked on Fox not merely as a wrong-headed and unprincipled politician, but as the preacher and the teacher of evil, a Mephistopheles who had set himself to corrupt the morals and ruin the character of his son, who having succeeded only too well had carried him off in triumph to head the party of revolution against the church and the throne. Nor was this view, distorted and one-sided as it was, wholly without foundation. The prince's character was not one which required a Mephistopheles to ruin it. There was not much of it left by the time he was out of the nursery. But Fox, if not his leader, had certainly been his companion in many a scene of dissipation while the prince was yet a boy. The coterie of young Whig lords by whom the prince was surrounded, and whose ill-timed jests and bets upon the succession rankled so deeply in the heart of the king, were the devoted adherents of Fox. His was the one influence which the prince on emerging into manhood willingly owned. He was the only man in England who could have checked the headlong torrent of extravagance and vice. Yet his influence, though sometimes exerted for the public good, seems never to have been used in purely private matters. Fox was content to allow the prince the same liberty which he himself had enjoyed, and so it happened that the want of moral sense, so conspicuous throughout his whole career, forced him to throw away the opportunity which he and he alone could utilize. How could he, with his past history of debt and of gambling, with his present history of carelessness and immorality, play the part of mentor. His own vices rose up in judgment against him, 
and prevented him from using the only means which could have reconciled the king to the whigs and paved the way for his own return to office ah que l'immoralité de ma jeunesse a fait de tort à la chose publique was the exclamation of the despairing mirabeau in similar circumstances and fox if he ever permitted himself to reflect upon the connection between morals and politics must often have been tempted to re-echo the cry ever since he was eighteen the prince had always been under the influence of women usually each connection that he formed proved as evanescent as it was discreditable but in seventeen eighty four he fell seriously and as he thought permanently in love with mrs fitzherbert a young widow of twenty-eight with considerable personal attractions but a roman catholic by religion mrs fitzherbert at first was naturally rather alarmed than flattered by her conquest nothing daunted however by her coyness the prince proceeded to lay siege to the fortress by every contrivance known to the hero of a melodrama he made vows and protestations he cried by the hour he rolled on the floor he tore his hair he wrote appalling love-letters thirty-seven pages long he went into hysterics he swore to give up his crown and his country and even descended to the mean trick of an affected suicide it is not often that a prince has to push his suit to such lengths when a year had elapsed and his passion still seemed to remain as constant as ever mrs fitzherbert could hold out no longer in december seventeen eighty five she returned to england from her sanctuary abroad and on the twenty first of the same month the two were married by an english clergyman in the presence of at least six witnesses the step was one of serious political importance by the royal marriage act the marriage was invalid as the previous consent of the crown had not been obtained and the prince was under twenty-five years of age but it was exceedingly doubtful whether this disability would be held to exempt him from the penalties of the act of settlement by which marriage with a roman catholic forfeited the succession to the crown the doubt was so grave that fox thought it his duty to interfere in a long and carefully worded letter written ten days before the marriage he pointed out in terms of respectful affection the seriousness of the issues at stake both to the prince and to the nation he was answered in a few jaunty lines absolutely denying the truth of the rumours so malevolently circulated ten days after this distinct denial the marriage was celebrated but kept secret from fox it was impossible however to keep it secret very long from the world early in seventeen eighty six the bailiffs were in possession of carlton house the king refused to authorize his ministers to make any application to parliament for his son's assistance the opposition took the matter up and in april seventeen eighty seven alderman noonan gave notice of a motion for the payment of the prince's debts during the year the rumours of his marriage had been growing more and more persistent many of the opposition leaders partly on that account were opposed to any application to parliament at all the duke of portland had such a stormy interview with the prince that burke thought that the party would break up roll the hero of the roliad took up the cudgels for the tories and openly intimated 
that the proposal if pressed would involve questions by which the constitution both in church and state would be affected on this fox saw that some explanation was absolutely necessary he had an interview with the prince and on the next day speaking on his behalf and having as he avowed direct authority for what he said told the house of commons that the prince was willing to give his majesty and his majesty's ministers the fullest assurances of the utter falsehood of the fact in question which never had and which common sense must see never could have happened in consequence of this explicit statement the house voted one hundred and sixty one thousand pounds for the payment of existing debts and an addition was made by the king to the prince's allowance on the morning following fox's statement the prince went up to mrs fitzherbert and taking her hands in his said only conceive maria what fox did yesterday he went down to the house and denied that you and i were man and wife on the same evening a gentleman said to fox at brooks's i see mr fox by the papers you have denied the fact of the marriage of the prince with mrs fitzherbert you have been misinformed i was present at that marriage a story more incredibly base could not be found in the whole range of fiction it was bad enough that a man of position and education should solemnly deny his approaching marriage ten days before the ceremony took place that after he had been married more than a year he should instruct his friend publicly to brand his wife's honour in the house of commons in order that as the price of her assumed shame he might procure the payment of his own debts shows an extent of moral obliquity but little better than that of a father who lives on the proceeds of his daughter's prostitution after an act of such vileness as this his attempt to throw over fox when he had made all the use of him that he could seems comparatively trifling yet that violated the rules of social honour no less than the other did those of domestic faith fox himself had the rare courage to hold his tongue and not to make matters worse by publishing the gross deception of which he had been made the victim but the relations between the two could of course never again be the same for a year he absolutely refused to have any dealings at all with the prince but after that time the necessities of party warfare and his own easy standard of morality paved the way for a reconciliation they became once more political allies but never again intimate friends in the spring of seventeen eighty eight fox found himself able to carry out a long meditated tour in switzerland and italy as was usual with him he abandoned himself wholly to the delights of travel banished all thoughts of politics never looked at an english paper except to see the result of a race at newmarket and promised himself a long spell of unalloyed happiness in the art galleries of italy the dream however was quickly dispelled he had only got as far as bologna on his way south when he was summoned home as quickly as he could travel by the news of the alarming illness of the king and he had to tear himself away from the society of guido reni and the caracci whom strange to say he greatly admired in order to plunge headlong into the keenest party fight which had occurred since seventeen eighty four 
for some months it had been evident to those about the court that the king's mind was slightly impaired but it was hoped that quiet and rest would enable him to recover without drawing public attention to the matter at the beginning of november however his affection took a serious turn for the worse he completely lost his reason became violent and depressed by turns and was seized by a sharp attack of fever which placed his life for some days in danger parliament was summoned to meet on the twentieth and it was clear that on its assembling immediate measures would have to be taken for conducting the affairs of the country during the incapacity of the crown to an ordinary observer the difficulty did not seem to be a serious one the queen was the natural person to take charge of the king and the prince now of full age to succeed to the regency all politicians however knew that the matter was not so simple as it looked it was thought at the time that the king's incapacity was certain to last for months and probably for years it was certain that the first act of the regent would be to dismiss pitt from office and recall the leaders of the hated coalition men saw with horror the prospect open out before them of a renewal of the party fight of seventeen eighty four with the conditions reversed they found themselves suddenly face to face with a minority ministry resting wholly on royal support bidding frantically for the votes of the constituencies as their only safeguard against the vengeance of the king should his reason return so over the stricken mind of george the third as of old over the dead body of patroclus swayed the faction fight it is a melancholy chapter of english history not one of those who took a leading part in the question came out of it with increased reputation the prince and the duke of york showed an indecent haste to seize upon the king's papers and a desire to oust the queen from the guardianship of his person they were believed openly to exult in the prospect of reversing his most cherished policy and ejecting his chosen minister when the king lay as it was thought dying they were dancing gambling and drinking the queen zealous in the extreme of her rights over the king's person resented any interference on the part of the princes with an acrimony which bordered on insult deliberately denied them information and on the king's recovery poisoned his mind against them pitt ever stately and dignified wasted time deliberately in the hope of the king's recovery and embittered opposition by the needless and ungenerous restrictions which he sought to place upon the regent the opposition completely lost their heads on the sudden prospect of a return to power they threw to the winds all respect and thought for the terrible blow which had fallen upon the head of the state they took a pleasure in magnifying his infirmities they prophesied the impossibility of his recovery burke especially was so carried away that he almost gloated over his sufferings fox and the duke of portland settled their cabinet and it was said allotted their patronage before the regency was an accomplished fact on all sides mismanagement was rife but fox was chiefly responsible for the blow sustained by his own party his want of parliamentary tact again put the game into his adversary's hands 
Parliament met on the 20th of November, and on December 8th the Commons examined the King's physicians as to the state of his health and drew up a report. On the 10th, Pitt, in consequence of the report, moved that a committee should be appointed to search for precedents with a view of laying a foundation for a Regency Bill which he proposed to introduce. Fox, who had been in England more than a fortnight, and had ample opportunity of consulting his friends, strongly protested against the adoption of this course. It is a sheer loss of time to search for precedents, he said. The circumstances to be provided for does not depend upon our deliberations as a House of Parliament. It rests elsewhere. There is now a person in the kingdom different from any other person that existing precedents can refer to, an heir apparent of full age and capacity to exercise the royal power. In my firm opinion, the Prince of Wales has as clear as express a right to assume the reins of government and exercise the powers of sovereignty during the continuance of the illness and incapacity with which it has pleased God to afflict his majesty, as in the case of his majesty's having undergone a natural and perfect demise. As to this right, which I conceive the Prince of Wales to have, he himself is not to judge when he is entitled to exercise it, but the two houses of Parliament, as the organs of the nation, are alone qualified to pronounce when the prince ought to take possession of and exercise this right. The joy of the ministerial power when they heard this clear enunciation of the doctrine of hereditary as against parliamentary right from the lips of the Whig leader can easily be imagined. I'll unwig the gentleman, cried Pitt as Fox was speaking, for the rest of his life. Of the momentous business opened last night, wrote Sir William Young to the Marquis of Buckingham, I can only say that our astonishment is only equalled by the spirits we are in on viewing the grounds Mr. Fox has abandoned to us and left our own. Talbot, who made one of my morning's levy, told me that at White's last night all was hurrah and triumph. Pitt seized the opportunity with masterly skill. Once more the blunders of his rival had enabled him to stand forth in the eyes of the world as the champion of the king and the constitution. Turning upon Fox, he denounced the doctrine he had just heard as treason to the Constitution, a reassertion of the exploded doctrine of indefeasible right. In vain, Fox tried to explain away his words, to induce the House to leave abstract questions alone and proceed to practical matters. Pitt fully understood his advantage and meant to press it. Fox, he said, had deliberately raised the question of abstract right. He had claimed for the prince a vested right to the regency. It was impossible to stir a step until the question of right was determined, for it touched the very vitals of the Constitution. A few days afterwards, Sheridan added fuel to the flame by reminding the House of the danger of provoking the prince to assert his right. The effect was instantaneous. During the whole time that I have sat in Parliament, writes W. Grenville to his brother, I never remember such an uproar as was raised by his threatening. Visions of the days of Charles I floated before the members' eyes. 
Parliament was being openly defied and threatened. The principles of divine right and of the indefeasible authority of princes seemed again to rear themselves from their slumber and place the liberties of Englishmen once more in jeopardy. Well might Grenville say in another letter, Only think of Fox's want of judgment to bring himself and his friends into such a scrape as he has done by maintaining a doctrine of higher Tory principle than could have been found anywhere since Sir Robert Sawyer's speeches. Never was Pitt's singular parliamentary ability so evident as in his management of the Regency question. His was the worst case to argue, from the point of view of constitutional law, but Fox, with his usual carelessness, had used words which were easily capable of being interpreted in an unconstitutional sense. Pitt immediately fastened this meaning upon them, and from that moment all attempts to explain appeared as attempts to explain away. To us there cannot help being something ludicrous in the picture of Fox and Sheridan standing in the pillory of public opinion with Atterbury and Sacheverell as the apostles of divine right. We wonder that Parliament did not at once see the joke and sweep the cobweb away with a hearty peal of laughter. But to men of that day, the danger to the Constitution seemed serious enough. The tarnished character of the Prince of Wales and the distrust so generally felt in Fox since the coalition made men unwilling to entrust to their keeping the full powers of sovereignty and afraid of acknowledging a principle which seemed to put them outside the sphere of parliamentary control. As a matter of policy, Pitt was undoubtedly right. It was better under the circumstances to disregard constitutional logic. It was wiser to confer the regency on the prince and to restrict his powers by act of parliament, although such a course necessitated the creation of a phantom king, than it was to place the whole household, as well as the whole administration, unreservedly in the hands of a prince, who could not understand that a constitutional king must not be a party leader. But as a matter of constitutional law, Fox's view was by far the most logical and comprehensive. The crown of England is hereditary, not elective. Incapacity in the king must be considered in the light of a temporary demise, on the occurrence of which the temporary succession passes at once to the heir of of age and preserves the continuity of the constitution parliament apart from the king as the great council of the nation may well recognize this state of affairs and call upon the prince to enter upon his new duties but parliament as part of the legislature apart from the king has no power at all it cannot by itself pass the smallest measure, much less impose restrictions on the executive. To get over the difficulty by making the affixing of the great seal by a parliamentary commission tantamount to the royal assent was to introduce a totally new principle into the Constitution, and one far more dangerous than that of the inherent right of the Prince of Wales for it came very near to dispensing with the royal assent altogether. It was intended, said Burke, to set up a man with black eyebrows and a large wig, a kind of scarecrow to the two houses, who was to give a fictitious assent in the royal name. 
the farce reminds me of a priest among savages who raised an idol and directed its worship merely that he might secure to himself the meat that was offered as a sacrifice End of section fourteen